Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for another morning. Another morning that we don't deserve and we wake up in the joy of your mercy in Christ. And we know that we um, are mere recipients of, your, of the riches of your grace in him. And so we thank you for that. We want to have thankful hearts that are warmed by the beauties of Jesus, the working of the Holy Spirit, and the kindness of your intention toward your people. And so we pray that as we come to this topic of the effectual call of the Holy Spirit, that you uh, would remind us of your great love and that it was for love that you did this. And that in spite of our rebellious hearts, born in Adam, you and your kind mercy saw fit to change us, that we would begin the journey of restoring the image that was corrupted in Adam. We thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we are uh, continuing our, our little 10,000-mile overview of the doctrines of grace. Yes, 10,000 miles. We're, we're at Saturn. <clears throat> We've spent some time talking about the, um, the, bi the biblical witness that our hearts are born kind of fouled up in Adam. Um, we are born rebels to the supremacy of Christ in the image of God. And we've talked about that the doctrine of total depravity, total inability. And we've seen that it doesn't mean that every person is a Hitler. And that, you know, everybody doesn't go as bad as they possibly can. There is some restraining grace uh, <laughs> involved with everyone. Uh, but what it does mean is that the whole person, body and soul, is corrupted by, uh, infiltrated, infected by the sin of Adam. And so we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's the, that's the, the, the phrase that we've been going back to. So the, the issue is that we have no hope of riding the ship ourselves. We always choose from birth to rebel against God. Our motives are messed up. There's some things that may look good on the outside, but inside the motive of the heart is one that is self-aggrandizing, self-promoting, and takes away from the glory of God for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That, that is the, the testimony of Scripture of who we are um, in Adam. It's our want to that's messed up. We have hands that can obey. We have eyes and, 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 and ears that could obey and, and be a part of um, the creation the way we were meant to be. But it's our want to that's messed up. And so what we find um, is that we can't get back to the state of innocence that was in the garden. It's a hopeless situation. Okay, that's the bad news. We've gone over that for some time. We talked about some objections last time. So what I want to do as we go through the series from here on out is talk about the good news. Um, one of my favorite passages is Ephesians 2. I love that passage. And it, it begins with the bad news. Paul talks about that we were... Uh, dead in sin and in trespasses, uh, walking, uh, uh, you know, condemned with the rest of mankind and all of that. And then he goes into 
the hope that we have. And he starts with, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And that's a huge statement. Whatever we discuss about the, the doctrines of grace, we can't gloss over that point. Um, as poor as we are in our desperate state, God is shown to be all the richer in mercy. And, and it, 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 there's a couple of types of mercy. I mean, there's a heartless mercy. There's a diplomatic mercy. I want to look like I have a good, generous foreign policy, so I don't care about the people, but I'm going to donate money to a country anyway, right? That's a heartless foreign policy, a heartless mercy. And then there's a heart-filled mercy. And that's what Scripture tells us that God has for His people. It's because of His love toward His people. Uh, when it's mercy from the heart, and that's what we see in Scripture with God's actions uh, toward us, it's mercy from the heart. It says, because of the great love with which He loved us. And so I, I want to start... I know there's the five points. I know it's a flower. I know it's tulip, T-U-L-I-P. I want to start with our experience of that love. I want to start with our experience of that mercy. So I want to, I, I, I found that um, through the years, most people, many, many I, there's one person I can think of that I've talked to about these issues who's, who claims to be a Christian, who, who professes Christ, who said, it was me that did it. I, I chose, it was my faith, it was, I, I'm awesome, I made the better choice. I mean, only one person I've ever heard ever say that. Everybody else, I think, even if they don't embrace these doctrines, will say, something happened to me. Something changed in me. I was going this way, and either through events and circumstances, some, somehow the light bulb came on, I needed Jesus. I've ne most people, and I don't know what your experience is with that too, if you're just talking about their conversion, that's the way they describe it. I think intuitively we know that that's a work of God. That's a creative act of God. And so uh, I, I, want to, I want to go into that with this other backdrop. It's the love of God that is undergirding all of this. And the second point I want to, want to go at as we begin these next few points of, of Calvinism is that I'm a Calvinist because I'm a Trinitarian. I believe in these doctrines because I believe that all three persons of the Godhead are involved in my salvation and the salvation of everybody else. And, it, and they're unified in this. Um, Scripture teaches that what happens in the redemption of a person is a unified effort by all three persons of the Godhead. There's no disagreement. There are different roles, and we're going to start talking about the roles today, but it's the same end. Um, so, Shai of Lynn will say it this way. The Father elects them. The Son pays their debt and protects them. The Spirit is the one who resurrects them. The Father chooses them, the Son gets bruised for them, the Spirit renews them and bears fruit in them. So I, some great, great history there in the statement of Shivelin, one of the church fathers. Um, all right, so the question is, is the Spirit's work effective? That's the question. Is the Spirit's work effective? Is His work 
resistible. We're going to start with the Holy Spirit's work in the heart of, of the sinner. And, and we're going to do that before we get to why he does it. What's the, what's the grounding? What's the, what's the process of, of how he is able to just transform the heart of a sinner? So we're going to start with the transformation first, or regeneration. Um, Justin Martyr put it this way. Do you think, O oh men, that we could ever have been able to have understood these things in the scriptures unless by the will of him that wills these things we had received grace to understand him, to understand them. That's just a martyr uh, 150 AD. Just, it didn't start with Calvin. I just want to keep emphasizing that. This is stuff that has been um, taught by the church from the very beginning. Uh, I love this from Arrhenius. And as the dry earth... If it receives not moisture, does not bring forth fruit, so likewise we, being first a dry tree, can never bring forth fruit unto life without the rain which comes freely from above, that is, the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit's work that changes our perceptions, our understanding of the gospel. Athanasius in AD 350 said, To believe is not ours or in our power, but the Spirit but the spirits who is in us and abides in us. And then Augustine in AD 370 said, Faith itself is to be attributed to God. Faith is made a gift. These men, however, Pelagians, uh, attribute faith to free will. So grace is rendered to faith not as a gratuitous gift, but as a debt. What does he mean by that? God Here's my gift to you, now you owe me salvation. Here's my, because it comes from me, my awesomely awesome faith, now God owes me salvation. Augustine says that's crazy talk. It, it's a gift from God. We're indebted to Him. We owe Him everything because He's done the work in the heart that needs to be done. All right, so where are these church fathers, Shivelin and the others, where are these church fathers getting this understanding of the Spirit's work uh, in the heart. Why are they saying that the grace is, um, is irresistible? Because they read the Bible. They didn't have mics back then. And I'm just realizing something. I have pulled up in my notes your handout. And that is not good. Um, of course, people will always resist the Holy Spirit before regeneration. I mean, that, that's really not uh, 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 something that we, that we debate. <laughs> of course they do that. Um, saying that, you know, where is the thing? Saying that people, um, thank you. Saying that, uh, uh, People resist the Holy Spirit does not mean that it's it's always uh, resistible. Um, we see this in, in Acts seven fifty one, uh, where S Stephen. We saw this whenever we went through Acts. You stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did. So do you. Um, that is, I think. Uh, clear, a clear statement of what we have before regeneration. Right? Stephen's talking to the crowd. They're about to stone him. And he says, 
You always resist the Holy Spirit. And some people look at that and say, well, see, we always can resist the Holy Spirit. And on the surface, if we're going to stop there, okay. But what is he talking about? He's talking about the heart in Adam, right? He's talking about the, the natural rebellious state that they're in, so much so that they're going to kill him for preaching the gospel. Um, again, you see in... in um, in Romans 10, 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. In John 10, Jesus says, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? Which remember, we had nine chapters before we get to this point. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The, uh, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. And notice why you don't believe. Because you are not of my sheep. What is the statement there? We'll get to this when we talk about definite atonement more. But it's, it's the idea that everybody is going to resist the teaching of Christ unless there is some work, there's some change in who they are from God. The basic position that they're in is, you're not of my sheep. Until Christ comes, until the Holy Spirit works, um, they're, going to be, um, they're going to be resisting. All right, I think I've got this fixed. This could, this could happen. Yes, it's all good. All right, so we're to proclaim the gospel indiscriminately or promiscuously, as the Senate Dort stated. However, an unbeliever by nature uh, will resist due to their blindness, their deafness, their, uh, their hardness of heart. That's, gonna, that's the way that we are born. We're going to resist and, and rebel against the gospel. Something has to happen. A necessary act has to happen on the dead heart. So for the purpose of, of grace, an act of God, a miracle, must take place to save anyone. John 6, 44. Jesus said, no one can come. Notice the, the language of ability. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'm no Greek scholar, but the smart folks tell us that draws there has the idea of Drawing water out of a well, pulling against gravity to pull water up out of a well. Um, the natural inclination is to stay down low. You have to pull against gravity to get that thing up. And that's the language that Jesus is using here. It's in red, so we know it's inspired. He uses that language, and he says, And those who are drawn, I will raise him up on the last day. It's John 6, 44. Um, John 6, 63-65. Uh, uh, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. I mean, what, what clear statement do you need on this? It's the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. And why did he say this? He's given an account for Judas. Right? Isn't that, the, isn't that the editorial here that we get from John? For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. He's giving an account for Judas. 
And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So what happens? God overcomes the resistance. There comes a point in our hearts, those who are called, we'll get to that, those who are called, there comes a point where the resistance is no longer uh, effective. It becomes futile. God, in His power, overcomes the resistance. This is the testimony of Scripture. There comes a point when God says, Enough to the resisting for the one He has chosen. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles, which is the natural state of the heart. It's going to be rejected. But to those who are what? Called. There's the language. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is seen as, or Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. What makes a difference to the blind seeking of the Greeks and the scoffing of the Jews? In both cases, the calling that Paul references opens their eyes to the beauty of Christ as both God's power and wisdom. Um, in context, if we're looking at redemptive history, we've got to remember that this is part of the covenant that was promised in the Old Testament. The new covenant. Remember the, the old covenant given by Moses we went through uh, in, in Exodus, and, and we will again when we go through Numbers and Deuteronomy. Um, the old covenant was a covenant of laws, right? There, there was no promise of uh, a change of heart, of God doing a work in the heart. Moses said... Uh, in, in Deuteronomy, uh, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Still hasn't happened. Even though you have all this external stuff going on that God is doing for your for your benefit as a nation, as a, as a birthing nation, birthing a new nation, he still doesn't give you a new eyes. Why is that important? Because they're going to disobey the law. By nature, they're going to see the, the law and they're going to look at ways to covet. They're going to look at ways to commit adultery. They're going to look at ways to murder. They're going to look at ways to worship something other than God because that's the natural bent of the rebellious heart. But then he lays out, and, and that's in Deuteronomy 29, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he lays out the plan of God and tells them a promise of a future covenant. And this is, the very, this is in Deuteronomy that he's laying this out. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the prophets later on also spoke very clearly of this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put, I will put, notice the, who the actor is, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. Uh, Jeremiah 32, And I will make with them an everlasting covenant, and I will not turn away from, the, from doing good to them, and I will put, God's action, I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. Um, Ezekiel 36, uh, 26-27, 
And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So it's a causative action that God does. This isn't, you know, I, I made the better choice, although it involves a choice. It isn't, I overcame my obstacles and I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps and I'm just awesomely awesome. Hey, God, you owe me. I will cause, God says. He will cause you to walk in His statutes and be careful to obey His rules. Well, how does this work out? How do we, how do because Scripture speaks of a couple of different callings, right? I mean, there's this, there's this call that we talked about in Acts 1, go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them. And then he says, um, you know, uh, that you'll go, you'll be my witnesses in Acts. You'll be my witnesses in, in Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and some area, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. Um, Jesus said, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. That's a general proclamation, a universal proclamation over the hearts of men. Um, Acts 17, Paul says to the, to the guys in Athens, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. You don't look for as... Well, I don't know if this is actually true. But someone attributed to Spurgeon the statement that if I knew that there were yellow marks on the backs of every elect person, I would go ripping their shirts up to, you know, to know who to preach to, but we don't do that. He commands all men everywhere to repent. Uh, um, and, and in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All who labor. The call is general. There's this external general call to all people, bend the knee to Jesus. Repent and believe the gospel. But then there's also in Scripture this, this testimony of a special calling, an inward calling for those who are the elect of God, who are going to believe, and for those for whom Christ died. And notice I set up the two preconditions there. We're talking about what the Spirit does, but the basis of that, and we'll get to that, is God's choosing, the Father's choosing, and the Son's purchasing or death. Jesus said in Matthew 22, 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. So there's a general call and there's an internal call. First uh, Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And 2 Timothy 1.9 says, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And notice that 2 Timothy passage. Again, there's that Trinitarian idea that he called us because of his own purpose and grace, the Father chooses, which he gave us in Christ, the Son dies, purchases, and all that calling is through the operation of the Holy Spirit. And so I, I listed in your handout many, many more verses. I don't want to belabor it too much. But just remember a couple of examples that we talked about in Acts. Do you remember Lydia? Do you remember when we went over the, the, the conversion of Lydia? Um, 
in, in Acts 16, 14, uh, Luke records for us, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord, and the language he uses here, opened her heart. Why? It was closed. It was closed to the gospel. In Adam, all die. She was hardened. And, and Luke's testimony about that situation, his editorial there, is the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Lydia was a totally depraved sinner. Another one. Like the rest of mankind. Her heart was closed, hardened to the gospel. She couldn't hear or respond to, from the heart to the things Paul was saying as he gave the general call. She was, I don't know if you've ever seen this. Have you ever been talking to somebody about the gospel? And you talk to them about politics, they're all in. But when you kind of bring it into the gospel, it's like this veil just kind of goes over their eyes. And there's suddenly there's glossy, okay, whatever. I mean, I'm being a little facetious, but I'm, it seems to be that there's just numbness that happens in the eyes sometimes when you're talking to people about the gospel. There's this trend, this uh, response, except for, in Lydia, we see, except for, it was when the Spirit miraculously worked in her heart that she was able to truly hear and believe. I mean, the people with the glassy stuff may actually be able to repeat the words you're saying, but they don't hear it, Right? Lydia could hear, and, and Luke is saying it's because the Lord opened her heart. Um, Jesus said in John 10, My sheep hear my voice. What does that mean? Well, it means my sheep hear my voice. But it also means that those who are not of my sheep don't hear my voice. There's the dullness, the numbness. I, don't, I do not understand the words that are coming out of your mouth kind of idea of spiritually discerning what's going on. He gives a special call to those whom he has chosen to be his sheep. They alone hear that call, or they hear the external call that way, may be another way to say it. All right. Faith and repentance are a gift of God. It's necessary for us to trust Jesus. It's necessary for us to repent of our sin. That has to happen. We're not saved because of election. We're not saved uh, because... Uh, necessarily the fact that Jesus died. It's the application of that to us, and we have to trust that. Uh, just because the serpent was lifted in the wilderness doesn't mean that all of Israel got to escape the fiery serpents. They had to look on the serpent, right? So you have to trust Christ. You have to have faith. You have to, have to believe. But the problem is, again, as we saw, the human heart is hardened. Unless there's a work of God, Unless there is uh, a, a gift of faith and repentance, uh, we won't do it. But these are, we see in Scripture, part of the New Covenant. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What does the it represent? What is the it modifying? Faith? And grace? Yes? Exclusively faith. It's the whole package, isn't it? It, and I, you know, smart guys tell us, and, and Philip may comment on this, in the Greek, that 
there's, I think it's faith and grace. I can't remember which one's the feminine and which one's the masculine. But it is neuter. And usually whenever it's neuter, not modifying or taking on the gender of either of those nouns, it tends to, to suggest that the writer, Paul, meant for the entire previous part of it to be represented by the neuter noun. Is that, is that fair? Am I very sketchy Greek? That's close. Okay, good. So all of it is it. Salvation, the grace, the repentance, the faith, all of it is a gift of God. Um, I, I was telling Tammy this morning about a, a friend of mine that um, he was telling me about his conversion. We were talking about some of this stuff, and he was talking to me about his conversion. He was a, apparently uh, an alcoholic uh, before he was saved, and he said, I, apparently he was doing like an all-nighter bender kind of thing, and stumbled into a Baptist church. And he said, I don't even know why I was there. Uh, you know, maybe he just didn't feel comfortable driving. He knew people, I don't know. But anyway, so he, I stumbled into a Baptist church. And he got to the point where the altar call, and whatever you think about those, we'll just go with it. Um, the altar call, he's standing at the pew, and they're singing Just As I Am the 30th time. And, and he's standing there at the pew, and he said there was an internal struggle. I remember it clear as day. My hand is on the back of the pew, white knuckling it. I'm not going down there. I'm hanging on. And he said, Kevin, it was as clear as a bell to me. I'm hearing a voice screaming in my head, don't go down there. Don't do this. You know, hang on. And it just a small little thing said, go. And I went. It was like immediately. It's the most radical thing I've ever experienced in my life. I, I don't know what you make of that. I mean, I think clearly uh, in his experience, and that's what we're talking about this, faith and repentance are a gift. And that's a clear expression of that there. Now, not everybody has that kind of radical, you know, voices in your head thing. But for him, it was very radical. Um, but in all of us, uh, it, it's a miracle that we believe it all. All right, look at 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. Again, we're saying faith and repentance are gifts. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. I don't like that part. But why is, why is Paul telling us to do this? God may, perhaps, he's not bound to because, hey, I was gentle for once. He's not bound to, but he may perhaps grant them repentance. That's the language of gifting, isn't it? Repentance is a gifting that leads to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Another satisfied customer. All right. <laughs> In Acts eleven eighteen, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Faith and repentance are gifts of God. They're not our work. They're His work in us. We respond based on the inward calling of the Holy Spirit. I think it's really helpful when we're talking about this kind of stuff and we're thinking it through. What are the descriptions of the New Testament of conversion? How does the Bible talk about, how do the New Testament authors talk about this? And so if we take a casual survey uh, of this, 
Um, it's pretty amazing. First, new birth, right? Where do we hear new birth? Who, who uses the language of new birth? All of them. But first, first off, Jesus. John uses that language a lot, doesn't he? Um, in, 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 in recording what Jesus taught, especially John 3, Nicodemus. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 3. Uh, John 1, uh, uh, 11 through 13, it says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Great. That sounds like my work, doesn't it? Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the, nor the, will of the flesh, so it wasn't by nature that they were born this way. Nor the will of man wasn't nurture they were born this way, but of God. It's a work of God. And you see, I've, I've, I've got some other uh, scriptures there in your handout. First John uh, talks about, uh, John speaks uh, about a seed that God plants in believers that grows into a holy life that resists temptation. So new birth. Uh, uh, show of hands, who, who gave birth to themselves? Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris did. I've seen the meme. All right, Chuck Norris gave birth to himself. Everybody else, not so much. Um, others give birth to you, right? It's something done to you. It's a gifting to you. Some days it feels more like a gift than others, but it is a gift to you that you were birthed, right? That was something done to you. Um, it was a gift of grace. All right. So another, another language is resurrection. Uh, Ephesians 2.5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Um, and in, in Colossians 2, he says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Resurrection. Did Lazarus raise himself? No. All of the, all of the resuscitations from death that we see in, in the New Testament, none of them are sitting there on the slab saying, I want to be raised, I want to be raised. They're dead. There's no will. It's a lifeless body that Christ miraculously brings forward. That's the language of what the Holy Spirit does in the heart of the believer. Resurrection, new birth, uh, new creation. The creation didn't wait in the nether to be created, willing itself into existence, despite what Carl Sagan may believe about the eternity of matter. It was a sovereign act. So is the regeneration of a sinner's heart. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So 2 Corinthians 5.17, Galatians 6.15, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And these are the ways, and there are other verses that talk about this, these are the ways the New Testament talks about what happens in the heart of a sinner to bring them to Christ. New birth, resurrection, uh, new creation. All of them, all of them, miraculous acts of God not based on the, the, um, the work of any, the baby doesn't want to be born, baby doesn't know, baby doesn't even exist. Uh, the, the, uh, the new creation, 
and resurrection, all of those are passive. Each object in that is passive, done to it by uh, a superior actor, and that is God. All right. One of my favorite verses on this whole topic, and we'll end with this, is 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Uh, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. What is that in reference to? Creation. Creation. That's Genesis 1 language, isn't it? For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I love that. I love that language. It takes a sovereign act to change the dead heart into one alive in Christ. However, as you would expect, there are those who are objection, who raise objection to these things. Um, they argue that it violates free will. If God is forcing us to convert, you know, if it's love, set it free, you know, that kind of thing. If he's forcing us to convert, how is that? One, is it a sincere offer of the gospel? And we'll get to that when we talk about missions in Calvinism. Uh, is it a sincere offer? Um, it, it, it does it violate? Is it truly love for God to do that active converting, to do that sovereign act that, that overcomes the will of the sinner? That's the objection, one of the objections. And we'll go through some others uh, next time uh, we take up our continued study of Calvinism. All right, monologue by me. We have a few minutes. What are some questions, some comments by you on this on this stuff? Do you have any? Is anybody not? You know, you don't. Okay. What what, what is your objection? No. Okay, it's all right. Go ahead. Good question. Go ahead. I'm just kidding with you. It is. It's a good thing. Um, so the will post conversion um, after we've been born again, after we've been raised. Um, to life. What, what, what place does the will have after that? For freedom, Christ has set us free so that we're no longer in the bondage of sin. So, post-conversion, we're given a heart that still, that, that now wants to please God. But it's, but you're not a Jedi yet. Uh, it's not perfect. If it's a stony heart that we're, we have when we're born, Christ uh, the whole, through the Holy Spirit gives us a heart of flesh. I, in my head, I still think there's a lot of sediment still on the heart of flesh that, that kind of gets caked. And the process of sanctification, which is a different thing, and we'll talk about that when we get to perseverance of the saints. Um, the sanctification is the part of knocking off the sediment of the stone, you know, so the, it's all, you know, shiny and new. Yes? So what about the language of slaved? A slave of righteousness, a slave to righteousness. Right, right. That would seem to indicate that we don't have a will, we don't have a choice. We, after we have been regenerated, we choose righteousness. Sure. But, but you know. We can choose righteousness. Yeah, that's the issue. Well, but in the, that passage, Paul says, I'm, I'm using this human language because of your inability to understand. And so he's, he's making a, a contrast uh, philosophically because they don't get and it doesn't necessarily confirm that you're a good slave to righteousness. <laughs> you know, you can be a disobedient slave. The, the way I've heard it described is, th this is when you more heavily rely on the metaphor of 
having been sick in your sin, mm-hmm. and the gospel is making you well. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the cancer patient. You know, they are healing, but they're still very sick. And and if you don't take the meds, there's these means of grace. Yeah, you're gonna give off the greater appearance of being sick. Right. right. Being well. and, and that's the reality that I have. Whereas before I was just sick, there was no wellness there. And so the old man is dying. He's not dead yet. So he's mostly dead. He's has been mostly dead all day. <laughs> Together, really point that out, and I'm like so excited because I'm like, oh my gosh, our creative language, and if you just use subject and verb and direct object, it's just so easy. Amen. This is what I live with. Don't ever use an adjective. No No participles for you. John 1, 11 through 13, if you knock all that away, and he came to them, his own didn't receive him, and you're talking about the first phrase, it's like, but to all did receive him. So he's talking about only believers, and then there's an adjective phrase about them, but the whole subject verb is he gave the right, and and that it was born of God, so he gave them the right to be slaves to righteousness. Right. And then you juxtapose that with the second Timothy verse on the previous page, and it's all this stuff about how to emulate God and right. that his common grace would right. fall on some ears that would hear. But I love that it says at the end after being captured by him to do his will, like talking about if you're not with God, you're with the devil. Mm. And I think that goes back to what you were telling us on the last discussion of this. Like we think of ourselves as morally neutral or mm. some people that believe in proving your grace do. Right. And that just shows all throughout scripture, no, you were never neutral with something. That right. You were always enslaved this, right. Or the option to be right, and I th- that's a good that's a good way to think about it. Thank you for bringing that up because I think the slave language talks about the neutrality. It goes to the neutrality issue. Um, so that's that's good. Shameless plug. That's my editor. Well, it was that more of a statement. I love the analogy of of the new birth thing because I did not choose to be born to my parents. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But now that I have been born, there's a time when I don't really choose anything even after that. And I'm growing. And I'm You're growing going to Thanksgiving. And I'm maturing. <laughs> <laughs> but then there comes a time. I am always my parents' kid. Mm-hmm. But I can choose to love them and be with them, be a part of them, and, and give grace and honor to them. Mm-hmm. Or I can kind of choose to not. But that doesn't change that I'm always their kid. You need to be a good son or a, that's a great or a bad son. Yeah. Uh, so something you said, I know you're in touch on later, um, and it's maybe getting way out in front, but um, the problem with the language um, is is that of legitimate offer of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Nowhere in the New Testament does it call the gospel an offer. Mm-hmm. The gospel is a command. That's right. Obey, don't obey. It's not something that God's He's not. Out there yeah. So, yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's a command. Bend the knee. Kiss the sun while there's still time. Yeah, the, the Jeremiah 31 passage, uh, I remember reading one time that somebody said, God said, I will be their God. Yeah. It's not like I'm going to give them the offer. Yeah. Be there. It's like, I, I will be their God. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Um, I think the hard thing that I had with this doctrine and still sometimes have is not that God drew me irresistibly kind of against my my unbelieving will which I, I didn't really 
believe that when I was younger. I kind of thought I did. But um, that's not the hard part for me to, to grasp. The hard part, I think, for most people to grasp is, is what about my sister-in-law? Mm. What about... And yes, they're still breathing, so mm. there's, there's still hope. But um, and we don't know what God's going to do in their heart. But the, I think that's the hard part is when you see some or you see somebody that you know and you love, and they're they're hardened against the the general call of God, mm-hmm. and they apparently have not had the special call of God on their life, and it's really hard to go. Okay, God, I know you're sovereign. I know you're in control. I know you love your creation. Yeah. I know you love your people. Why not? Them? Yeah. You're right. And, yeah. I, and I, love what, I, I love what I love what saying here because this goes back to when you were talking about gravity. And I'm going to make some assumptions. I haven't asked, but we've had enough conversations that I think I'm correct. Um, you know, Jesus talks about the one who's forgiven much versus the one who's forgiven little. Mm-hmm. So when I think about the stuff that I've heard from Tammy's background. There, there wasn't a lot of outward, open, aggressive rebellion. And so she's coming from a place of having been forgiven little. Mm. So whereas a guy like me, when I look at, my, my feeling is the exact opposite of what she just said. I, I totally know why he's not drawing that person. Mm-hmm. Because I was just as bad. Why did I get drawn into mm-hmm. this? Like, I should totally go to hell. I should not be yeah. part of what's going on here. Because a guy like me should have no place right. in the God. Right, and so I think sometimes that struggle is determined by where people's starting point, and the va- because of the prevenient grace of God, the vast majority of humanity actually starts from a pretty socially good mm-hmm. place. Yeah. You're not that messed up. Right, I'm I'm, I'm not that bad of a guy. You sure. Know? Whereas if that's not where you're starting from, you know you're a messed up mm-hmm. person. Like if you know, you don't struggle with that as much. You go, oh. I totally get why he's not saving very many people. Yeah. Like, you know, he's like, yeah. yeah I mean, but I think, I think what she's also getting at is the there's an emotional component to this. Of what, of about, what, about, my what about my family member family or my friend? Or neighbor who's oh. a very right. good person. Yeah. But lost. But lost. And so you, you have, that's the, that's the fairness objection sure. from an emotional standpoint. And it's na- it's a I think a natural ex- uh, objection in our and we'll talk about that uh, the next time we talk about this topic because we're not going to do it next week. I'm gonna I, since it's gonna be easy, it's next week's Easter, right? Yes. yes I think that I think that's right. Uh, we might. We don't have Sunday school on. Oh, uh, I haven't heard. Do we have Sunday school? We have we have Sunday school. Have Sunday school? Have Sunday school? Have Sunday school? Just no Wednesday night. No Wednesday night. Okay. We may we may take up a. Uh, evidences for the resurrection on on Sunday. I don't mind doing that at all, and I can give you a hanky if you really want one, but um, we probably won't do that. Uh, so that's next time we pick it up, we're going to go through objections, and that's one of the major ones right there. If he does this, why doesn't he do it for everybody? That's that's the uh, that's a big objection, and um, and that's in, in order to rescue God. <laughs> Which is the kind of the, the the motive behind a lot of this? We don't want to make God look like some kind of monster by our estimation. Uh, in order to rescue, we say, "Well, he brings them to a point, and then they choose or they don't choose." That's kind of the the response that many people go to. So, uh, with that being said, any any other questions? I know it's it's just ten fifteen. I mean, we got another five minutes at least. Um, any if musicians are freaking out? They're starting to get twitchy. So probably ought to pray. Yes. All right. Let's pray. What should be the effect on the heart, Father, when we 
think of the riches of your grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Well, it certainly shouldn't be arrogance. It shouldn't be boasting in our own worth. It should be a humble gratitude that drives us to plead with all men, repent and believe the gospel. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to how unworthy we are of the riches of your mercy. And in the, our thankfulness, I pray that it would give us a zeal, number one, to pursue holiness, to, to pursue the means of grace that you've given us to keep us kept. And two, that it would drive us with urgency that those around us who are not in Christ must be shared the gospel. That, that we have to open our mouths and we have to do it in gentleness and respect, not arrogantly, not um, judgmentally, but speaking the truth in love, which is a hard balance. Um, calling and making known the command of Christ to all men everywhere, repent and believe the gospel. And so I thank you for this group. I thank you for their hearts. I thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit that you're doing in them to, to continually draw them into Christ, to, to um, form His image again in them. And that um, I pray that your Spirit would give us boldness to, to, um, to point to Jesus to those who don't know Him yet in hopes that perhaps you may do what you've done in us with the inward call of the Holy Spirit, transforming from death to life, to non-existence to new creation, from non-existence to new birth. We thank you for the power that you have to do that in the hearts, and we pray that it happen to those that we know who are in our circles who are not saved. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.